We just completed the prologue of the book, talking about who is Jesus, laying out that kind of framework for the study of the entire book of John. Now we get into the meat, beginning the meat of the book in verse 19. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be talking about this man, John. John the Baptist. There are several different Johns that appear in the gospel narrative. This man who was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah figures heavy in the narrative in every one of the gospels at the beginning portion of it. Uh, Keith read to us a section in the book of Matthew this morning. It's going to factor into the message today. But there are some remarkable things that are said about this man, John. He's always been very mysterious to me. Read about him and thought about him, but he's just always been kind of this figure that I had a hard time understanding. It tells us of him in these verses. Notice what it says in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. And so they asked him, Well, then who? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Notice there, they don't ask him, are you a prophet? Jesus says in Matthew 11 that he is a prophet, yet more than a prophet. But there is a definite article in front of the word prophet, the prophet. Are you the prophet? This refers to a specific prophet that had been prophesied of old in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, where God said to Moses, I will send the prophet. The prophet. We won't look at that now, but this is the question. Are you the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18? Are you the prophet? He answered no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and so they asked him, well, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet... So John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take your word written here and that you would make it live in our hearts in a way that it transforms our lives. Father, it's so easy for us to 
come into close proximity to your word so many times that it, I don't want to say becomes mundane, but it becomes routine. Holy Spirit, we need you to take your word and manifest yourself through it. Point us to Christ. Teach us this morning. Transform us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we talk about John, let's start in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, in chapter 3, in verses 1 to 3. Now, I didn't put number verse 1 here. In verse 1, if you look at it in your Bible or in the text, it gives a whole bunch of people that sets the historical moment in which John ministered. God was not afraid to give us details of historical moment so that we could look back on those moments in history and say, oh, this book is true. It is tied to specific events in history that are very traceable. I don't want to go through all those to date the ministry of John this morning, but he talks about Herod and these other people, Pontius Pilate, and and these things are happening in that time frame. And then he says, it is during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, I thought there was only one high priest. Why is there two? Well, it's because of political infighting, and the Romans step in to deal with it. So you have both Annas and Caiaphas, And this goes on all the way to the death of Jesus. This is historical reality again. So we see it dated and we see historical people mentioned here in the text around the ministry of John. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, notice this, the word of God came to John. He is the son of Zechariah. Remember that earlier in the book of Luke? Zechariah and Elizabeth. He is the son of Zechariah. And he is out in the wilderness. I love the wilderness of Wyoming. Amen? I love to go out in the wilderness. I love to get away from people and get out in the nature and the trees and um, see God's beauty and the animals and all those things. When I think about wilderness, I think about Wyoming. I think about our lush mountains Don't transpose in your mind when we say he is out in the wilderness. Don't think of the Bridger Tetons. Think of the armpit of the world. Think of no water, a hot, dusty, weary land where it's kind of miserable to live. That's kind of where he is. Okay, this is not the Garden of Eden. John is out in the wilderness. While he is out in the wilderness by himself, God is forging his character. And the word of God comes to him. And so he goes into the entire region that surrounds the Jordan, both on the side of Palestine, what we think of Palestine today, 
Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and also the Transjordan side, which we now think of as the Kingdom of Jordan today, Golan Heights and that entire region. He is transversing that entire region of the Jordan, proclaiming a message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is his ministry. It goes on for a period of time until Jesus reveals himself. Now, what I want you to notice, let's just look at the greater context. Let's step back from the immediate verses that we study today and think about the greater context of chapter 1. In chapter 1, we saw in verse 6 that John is a man sent from God. We talked about that when we studied that verse in verse 6. Every one of us, in one way or another, is sent from God. And we are all sent with vocation and calling and giftedness to use for his glory. In a very unique way, though, John is a man who is sent from God. He is sent with a specific task. The task is to bear witness, to testify to testify concerning Jesus. You will notice in verse 19, the verse begins, and this is the testimony. So in verse 6, we find he is a man sent from God, and his role is to bear witness to the light, to bear witness to Jesus. In verse 19, we then see uh, now, here is his testimony. And for the rest of this chapter, we have three occasions in which John testifies concerning Jesus, or he bears witness. The first one is what we study today. It's in verses uh, 19 through, actually, I think it's 28. I typed wrong there. I am not inspired and inerrant. Okay? His first testimony is to Jews who are sent to him from Jerusalem. They come from the Levites and the priests. Remember, don't check your brain at the door. John is from what lineage? Levites and priests. When did Zechariah receive the message of the birth of his son John when he is doing the service of the priesthood in the holy place and he is offering up the incense. He is in the temple. So he is kind of in that inner circle of the priesthood as a, both a Levite and a priest from the family of Aaron. Nevertheless, the Jews come to him from Jerusalem. He is out in the wilderness. He's not one of the inner circle. And you can almost read in all that they interact with him that there's a hostility there. Kind of a turf war going on here. Who do you think you are out here in the wilderness proclaiming this message of repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan? Who do you think you are? So there's a hostility. 
In verse 29 to 34 will be our next one. We'll look at this next week. It begins in verse 29. It says, notice this phrase, the next day. The next day, he sees Jesus coming to him, and he says, so think with me, okay, he's got this crowd of people that he is preaching to, and he is baptizing those who have repented of sins. And as he is ministering to this large crowd, he sees Jesus, and to the gathered crowd, he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God! He takes away the sin of the world. Oh, and he's saying, it's not this water that takes away your sin, my friend. It's him. And he points to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. This is his second testimony of the three. And I put the word curious there because it's the crowd. There are onlookers, and some will receive Jesus, and some will not. Nevertheless, they have come, and they have listened to John. The next one begins, flip my Bible, I had to flip the page, in verse 35. Very same phrase. The next day, John is standing with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus. He says to these two disciples who were with him, one of which is Andrew, who then will introduce Jesus to Peter, He says to him, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And now, these men who have been following John and have attached to him, both spiritually and emotionally, are told by John, Look to him. Don't keep looking to me. Look to Jesus. And they receive him. Remember in verse 11, as many as receive him. To them, he gave the power to become the sons of God to those who believe in his name. So we will see as we go through this text, we're going to see these three occasions in which John bears witness to Jesus. The first one we studied today. Now, in this first testimony, look with me. We read them already, verses 18 through verse 28. I'll get it right this time. Essentially, there are two questions. The two questions are these. Number one, who are you? They come from Jerusalem, and they come to John, and they ask him, who are you? We know you're John. (coughs) But who are you? What are you doing out here? Who are you? And they bring it down to some specifics. Do you think you're the Messiah? Do you think you're Elijah? Do you think you're the prophet? Who are you? The second one then is this. Why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Well, that's a good question for us to think about briefly this morning when we think about having a baptism next week. Why do we baptize? Why do we take people up there, right there, behind that wall, we have a wonderful baptistry. It's a galvanized horse tank. I stand behind it, and I put people in it. Right? And I I stand behind it and hope that they don't pull me in when they go down. But I stand behind it so I don't have to get wet every time I roll up my sleeves. 
And uh, someone comes up, and I look at them and say, so-and-so, have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? They reply, yes, I have. Upon that testimony, I am dunking you in water. Why? Why are we baptized? Why did Jesus say in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, and the first thing you do to reveal that someone is a disciple is to do what? Dunk them in water. What does that do? Why do we dunk people in water? Why are you baptizing? That's an interesting question to come from the Jews. You know why it's an interesting question? I've wrestled with this a lot. Read the entire Old Testament. There is no baptism. Is there? Read the Torah. There's no baptism. You go through the whole book. You go through the whole thing. 39 books of the Old Testament. And you don't see anybody getting baptized. Now you got Naaman, who was a leper getting cleansed. And there's other things things with water, but you don't see anybody like, okay, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to become a Christian. Well, they weren't Christians in the sense that we are, but I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be a part of the covenant. So I'm just going to go get dunked in water. You just don't see it. But then all of a sudden you come to the Gospels and John is doing what? He's dunking people in water. Well, I think it's a good question. Why are you baptizing? Well, what are you doing? Why are you dunking people in water? I don't read that in the book of Deuteronomy. That when somebody comes into the covenant, that you dunk them? So why are you doing that? Well, think about it. Go with me to Matthew 11 for a minute. Matthew 11 kind of riveted my attention for a big part of the week as I studied and as I reflected on this message today. Keith read it to us already this morning. In this chapter, we have Jesus interacting with his disciples, disciples of John, about John. This sets a lot of context to what we're talking about today. And I want to think about this, because John has gotten himself into trouble. John has spoken truth to power. Herod has taken his brother's wife and now has her in a sexual relationship. And John got a lot of guts. And he goes to this man and says, what you are doing is not lawful. He does not mean it is against the law of Rome. He means it's against what? The law of God. It does not matter diddly squat what the law of man says in one sense. You can think your life conforms perfectly to the social norms of the American culture and you can find yourself in direct rebellion against the God of heaven. Just because you think you conform to the mores of a culture means diddly squat. John confronts him and says, what you are doing is unlawful. And he gets thrown in jail. 
That's the context. John is in prison. John sends word to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a great day on the Jordan. This is he who all the prophets spoke of. Look to him, look to him. Now he's in prison. And what's John doing? Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Jesus sends word back to him. Tell him. He quotes from Isaiah the prophet. Now, John knew Isaiah the prophet well because whenever people asked him, who are you, what did he say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Isaiah chapter 40. And God points John to Isaiah and says, tell him, tell him this. Tell him the blind see. Tell him the lame walk. Tell him the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that's all he says. And then Jesus commends John. Did you go out in the wilderness to see a reed blowing in the wind? A man dressed in soft garments? A man with manicured nails and, you know, everything. Uh, you went out to see a guy with the bark on who told you the truth. I want to think about prisons for a minute. John is in prison. I spent some dear time a little over a year ago with Andrew and Noreen Brunson, who still pray can get here one of these years. They travel all over the world. But when Andrew was in prison in Turkey for the preaching of the gospel and for his faith, he talked about the darkness of that time. And I think we can all relate to this because sometimes we get thrown into prisons and prisons mess with brains. And they make you question things that were once clear in the light. The word of the Lord comes to John. He's in the wilderness. There are crowds. He is baptizing. Things are happening. It's a glorious moment. Behold the Lamb of God. And now he's in prison. And what is he doing? Who are you? He's questioning everything. Have you ever been there? One day you're on the mountain and God is there and everything is glorious. And the next day you're like, God, are you even real? Is there even a God? Prisons mess with brains and make you question things that were clear in the light. Now, I want to talk about prisons in this way. There are two types of prisons. I'll submit to you one of them is worse than the other. There are self-imposed prisons. This is like bondage to fear. This is like doubt. This is like the prison of worry. These are self-imposed. We create them. 
they work with circumstances, and many times circumstances brings it about. God is orchestrating all things in our life for our good and for his glory. But as we go through life, we will find ourselves many times in a self-imposed prison. I would say to you that it is never God's will that we stay there, ever. God does not want us to live our lives in a bondage of fear and doubt. He may use that prison. It may be a part of our growth, but it is never God's will that we stay there. That is one type of prison. There's another type of prison. It's this one. It is the prison of sovereign appointment. That's one that John is in. John is in a prison of sovereign appointment for his testimony for Jesus and for having the guts to speak truth to power. The other prison that he is in is self-imposed. It's doubt. It's struggle. It's related to this one. But they're not the same. Jesus came to set the prisoner free from this prison every time. But you know what, John? I want you to think about this. Jesus did not send word to John Get ready, I'm going to send an angel tonight, and we're going to bust you out. He did do that to Peter, didn't he? He did not do that to John. There is a sovereign appointment here. When we are in a prison of sovereign appointment, it is God himself who determines the length of our sentence, not us. This could be health. I had to get in that prison. Wasn't a funny prison. I really didn't like it. It wasn't my choice. In that prison, I found myself in the other prison. Bondage to doubt. To fear, to worry about my wife, and other things. God has prisons of sovereign appointment that will come our way in life. Jesus ministers to John in that prison. He sends him the word, and he says to him, stand on the promises. But John dies in that prison. He gets his head cut off. Why? You know why? Because John's ministry was to prepare the way. When he fulfilled it, Jesus took him home. He didn't do it in the way that we would think would be the way to do it. But that was not John's choice. As you go through life, 
you will come up against sovereign appointments. In those sovereign appointments, you will go through times of doubt. When you do, turn to the word. Turn to the word. I got an email from John Murchison. John Edwards mentioned John Murchison last week. John's a dear friend, obviously comes to this church in the summer, preached the gospel for many years, and he's been ill. He's had some real struggles with his heart, and he sent me an email, and he had a quote by Charles Spurgeon. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. The sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love. Amen. That's a good testimony. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says this. I stopped and wondered at this this week. This is Jesus. This is not hyperbole. He is speaking truth. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this phrase. It's an interesting phrase. He's just basically saying this. John's a great man, and everyone who lives in the kingdom that we now experience, we got it better. And we have no excuse, because we got the fullness of it all. We got the Holy Spirit. We got the church. We got the sacraments. We got the word completed. We got it all. We got no excuses. We got no excuse. But think about that first part. Now, think about world history. Think about all the pharaohs. Think about Alexander the Great. I think about Nebuchadnezzar. Think about George Washington. Think about the Bible. Think about Moses and Elijah and Elisha, Abraham. I mean, there's some pretty great people in the Bible. And John, or excuse me, Jesus says of John, this is not hyperbole. When I look through human history and I look at all the people who have ever lived, all the people who were born of a woman, now look, the only way you get into this world is what? You get born of a woman. You know, you didn't come in from a cat. Right? You come in from a woman. So that's all of us, among all those who were born of a woman, what does he say? No one has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. Wow, I better think about that for a minute. That tells me that this guy that makes no sense to me, who goes around the wilderness with camel hair garden, garments, that's a fashion statement, isn't it? A leather girdle and camel hair? And he's eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, he's finding, you know, honeycombs under the cliffs, and, and he's eating locusts. You say, oh, that sounds nasty. 
Well, it does sound nasty, but there really is a lot of protein in them buggers. I mean, go, you know, go shoot a coyote in August and cut open its guts. It'll smell, I guarantee it, but do it anyway, and look in its stomach. You know what will mainly be in that coyote's stomach in the middle of August? A lot of grasshoppers. That's what he's eating. He eats grasshoppers all day. Why, man? That's a good source of protein, and they're readily available. Not too hard. You don't get hurt when you kill a grasshopper. Locusts and wild honey. And he does nothing. I mean, Moses parted the river. Uh, not the river. That was Joshua. Moses parted the sea. John does no miracle. And Jesus says this guy is greater than anyone who's ever lived. Holy cow. I had to ask myself, why? What was it about this guy that made Jesus say of him, this guy is the greatest man who ever lived? Because then if I want to be, I want to be like Jesus most of all, but maybe if there's someone else that I want to be like on the earth, it would be somebody who is pretty great. Maybe I want to be like John. I won't wear camel garments though next week. Why did Jesus regard John as the greatest man who ever lived? Let's think about it for a minute and we'll close. Number one, obviously, because of the uniqueness of his mission. There's only one guy who had this calling. Prepare the way for the Lord. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He has a unique ministry, a ministry unlike anybody else in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is completely unique. It is confined to this guy at this moment. That sets him apart as a great man. He is a forerunner for the Messiah. Secondly, it's this. It is because of the depth of his character. The depth of his character. There's no phony baloney with this guy. He's real. It tells us in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel says to Zechariah, you are to keep him from all strong drink and wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not from the age of five, not from his baptism, although there was no baptism then, we already talked about that, but not from, you know, when he, when he goes to the temple and he goes through the bar mitzvah. When was John filled with the Spirit? From the moment he comes out of his mother's womb. There is another guy that it says that of. His name was Samson. He has a Nazarite vow placed on him from birth. And he is set apart to the Lord. And God uses him mightily. But there's a whole lot of phony baloney with that guy. Right? He's going to see Delilah. A whole lot of phony baloney going on with that guy. But not this guy. The depth of his character. And consider his humility. 
John's character, his lifelong filling with the Spirit, however, unlike Samson, he embraces his calling and he gives himself completely to the work, his remarkable continual deflection of glory away from himself to his master. He must increase. We'll see this later. John says to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. And he decreases so much that he gets his head cut off. He must increase, I must decrease. Disciples following John, he's baptizing them. Behold the Lamb of God, go follow him. Don't stay with me, go with him. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not, he says. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 11? He is the spirit of Elijah. Now, he is not saying that John was a reincarnation of Elijah the prophet. He is saying, though, that he is a fulfillment of the Malachi chapter 4 prophecy concerning one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Think about that when we were going through that fifth commandment. Fathers to the children, children to the fathers. First sign of repentance in the preaching of John is dads all of a sudden saying, I need to do the Deuteronomy 6 thing. The Lord our God, the Lord he is one. Wherever I go and whatever I do, I'm going to talk about the Lord our God, and I'm going to write it on the walls of my house, and I'm going to talk about it when it goes by the way. I am going to turn my heart to my children. And as a father does that, the children's hearts are turned to what? To the fathers. First sign of this repentance that John is proclaiming is a massive revival among the men of Israel to look to the Lord and to invest their lives, not just in money, not just in things, but in their kids, with spiritual truth. And so he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, although he is not. And this, I think, is just a sign of, of, of John's Humility. I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice. That's what he says. I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice. And I'm not even worthy to do the work of a slave. Now, when he talks about that taking a sandal off someone's foot, the picture is when someone would come into a home, remember John 13, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. When someone would come into a home... I mean, what do I like to do? I come in and I kick off my boots. I better not do it now. But I kick off my boots, you know. I've been wearing my boots all day. And I kick off my boots and I sit by the fire and I put my feet up on the hammock, you know. And, you know, I take off my boots because I'm home. But when someone would come into a home in the ancient world, a slave would do that. It was the work of a slave. And John says, I, I, I mean, I am not even worthy to do that work of a slave to take off the sandal of my master, the Lord Jesus. So there was a remarkable deflection of glory away from himself to the master. There are questions by the authorities, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? I am the voice. Prepare the way. And so that leads to the second question, then why are you baptizing? Why was he baptizing? To prepare hearts. 
So this baptism of repentance was a means of preparing hearts for the message of Jesus' gospel. I'll tell you what. It's one thing to become a follower of Jesus and to sit in your pew and just do it. And just say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. It's another thing to say, I really believe this enough that I will get up in front of my peers and humble myself in water and confess before men I am a Christian. And so this is a baptism of repentance to prepare hearts. In Luke 1, I mentioned this already, Gabriel says to Zechariah, he will be great before the Lord. Notice that same phrase, he will be great. He must not drink wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord to God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart of the fathers to the kids and the disobedient. This is the kids who have been disobeying God. He will turn the heart of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And by doing so, he will make for the Lord a people prepared. A voice. God doesn't need your good looks. God doesn't really need your money. God needs your voice. God needs your voice. Let's pray. Lord, you've been burdening my heart to simply acknowledge before you this week my utter dependence upon you that you would fill me. And I pray for us, your people, that we would pray, as it says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Pray that you would come as a wind upon us, Lord. The wind blows where it wishes can't see it. Lord, we don't look for ecstasy, mayhem. Lord, what we look for is that your Holy Spirit would come upon us in such a way that we would be your voice. That in the wilderness of our personal experience, the word of the Lord would come to us. And that we would find a voice. Lord, forgive me for so many times not being your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.